Hello, and welcome to the Field Guides. I'm Bill, and I'm here with Steve. Good afternoon, Steve. Good afternoon, Bill. And this is our 17th episode. A nice prime number. Beautiful thing. <laughs> and what we're going to do today, and over the course of many future episodes, is give you experience of what it's like to be in the woods, in the field, and out on the trail. For each episode, we choose a natural history topic, do lots of research on that topic, and then take you out into the field and share everything that we've learned. Now, today, Steve, what is the topic? So today, we are talking about sap. Nature's junk food. <laughs> <laughs> I think we should warn people, this may be a two-parter. Yeah, yeah. And as you guys know, this is not a podcast about people. So today, <laughs> we'll be strictly talking about how different non-human animals tap trees for its sap. Okay, Bill, so what animal do you want to talk about first? Uh, humans. <laughs> this is awkward. <laughs> well, I looked into a lot of ways that other animals, other than humans... You really? sap. Yeah. All right. We had agreed on maple sugaring. <laughs> and then I. Which was kind of a silly <laughs> thing to agree on. Yeah. I ended up um, coming up with the idea to maybe not research that and have Bill research that one, and I'll look into the way animals do it. Yeah. So, which one do you want to tackle first? Before we do that, why don't we tell people where we are? Oh, okay. So, we are at Beaver Meadows Buffalo Audubon Center. <laughs> I never know what to leave out of that name. I can tell you. So, yeah. uh, I don't know if we mentioned this before, but this nature center is where I got my first big boy job uh, as a naturalist here. So, it's the Beaver Meadow Audubon Center. Got it. Owned and operated by the Buffalo Audubon Society. Uh, I'll never remember that. <laughs> so Buffalo Audubon does operate other sites, yeah. but this is their big nature center. So uh, we're standing in a, a second growth forest here. We're on a trail standing next to a, a huge tree cookie. This is actually a hemlock, but it'll serve our purposes. <laughs> is that the official term, a cookie? <laughs> it is. It's a tree cookie. Is it really? Yeah. Oh, wow. When you take a, a section of trunk and you slice it thinly, this is a gigantic cookie. This is, what would you say, uh, two, two and a half feet across? Yeah. Something like that? So the, the signage says it's 350 years old. Now, I don't know much about eastern hemlocks. Suga canadensis? <laughs> but, <laughs> but... That's the extent of my knowledge. <laughs> you mean you don't know anything about Suga canadensis? <laughs> All right. It is kind of interesting that we're looking at a hemlock here because we're going to get into vascular plants later, we but are. hemlocks lack a very specific part of the xylem yes. that we will touch on and we'll explain what a xylem and, and <laughs> all that is yeah all right so before we started the research for this episode you know steve mentioned hey let's do maple sugaring and once we both delved into the research you really should have known ahead of time that the subject is just massive oh yeah <laughs> so everything we looked into just led to another question and, and more information so just warning you folks this may be a two-part episode <laughs> yeah <laughs> we may have to slice it into two yeah so we'll see but both of us agreed that uh, it made sense at the beginning just to talk a little bit about tree structure. Uh, mm -hmm. I imagine a lot of our listeners have some basic knowledge of, of how a tree is put together. Yeah. But uh, I, I think it's valuable for what we're going to be discussing later. I'm just going to start at the most basic level, and that is just distinguish what we mean by vascular and non-vascular plants. Sure. And let's just talk about non-vascular really quick, just to get them out of the way, so we never have to talk about them for the rest <laughs> of the episode. <laughs> so, uh, non-vascular plants, they're just small, simple plants without transport tissues. The transport tissues are maybe the most important thing we'll be talking about all episode long, uh, and those are the xylem and the phloem, but non-vascular plants 
do not have them. An example of a non-vascular plant, or, or I should say a group of non-vascular plants, would be bryophytes. So that includes liverworts, like in the episode of Matt and Sarah, we talked about liverworts a lot, uh, hornworts, mosses. And also in this group, you would include some algae, and specifically like green algaes, red algaes, and like the kelps, the brown algaes. So as a side note, I've actually worked somewhat closely with some green algaes, specifically Cara and Nutella. They look like rooted vascular plants, but they're actually not. It's so obvious that there isn't vascular tissues. Every segment of the plant is one elongated cell. Mm -hmm. And so if you punctured that cell, it deflates like a balloon, which is a tree wouldn't do. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I think for most people, probably 99% of the population that aren't into plants, they would look at non-vascular plants and say, is that a plant? Sure, <laughs> yeah. They're not quite sure how it fits into the, the plant sure. kingdom. And in terms of non-vascular plants, a big aspect of their physiology is that other than not having transport tissues like vascular plants would, they also don't have roots. They have something that's kind of like roots, but it's really just to anchor them in place. Uh, but they're not going to be absorbing water through those little the way anchors. Vascular plants do. Right. So plants like bryophytes are often found in moist environments where the main body of the plant can absorb moisture. And we don't need to get into reproduction. There's the alternation of generations thing. Right. But that's pretty much all the important things to say about non-vascular plants is that they don't have transport tissues and they don't have roots. And that's that's pretty much it. So now let's move on to vascular plants. And Bill, do you want to take the lead on this I one? do. So, folks, picture in your head, uh, when you see a tree that's cut down, I want you to picture the rings, the interior of the tree. Because what we're going to do is take you through what the different um, parts of a tree's interior are all about. I, I think we need to understand that well before we can get into um, how the sap process works in a maple. Obviously, on the outside of the tree, you have bark. And uh, that's the corky layer that adds protection. But just inside that, then you have the phloem. That is the section of the tree, what some people call the inner bark, that transports nutrients down from the leaves. So just remember, phloem flows down the tree. It is important to say that although that's a great way to remember it, the phloem also kind of goes in both directions. Sure, that is yeah. true. But we say phloem flows down because its, its main purpose is to transport nutrients from the leaves to the rest of the tree. When we're talking about nutrients, we're talking about the products of photosynthesis. Correct. And of course, there's two major products of photosynthesis, and the oxygen part is what we don't want. Oxygen is really <laughs> reactive. We let that go out of the stomata. But the sugars, primarily in the form of sucrose, that's a very important food for a plant to send down to every other part of the plant that may need it. Yeah. Though I, I do just want to say uh, one more thing about what the phloem transports. It's not strictly just water and sugars. Sure. There's plenty of other things. There's hormones, there's mineral elements, and there's amino acids. So there's a lot of things, but sugar is the big one. So as you work your way into the tree then, beyond the, the phloem is the cambium layer. So the cambium cell layer, just a few cells thick, that's the living, growing part of the tree. So it uh, generates cells outward to become phloem and then outer bark, but it also generates cells inward. And just beyond the, the cambium layer, then you get into the xylem, or what people also call the sapwood. Yeah. Then as you go deeper into the center of the tree, the very old xylem that is filled with lignin and, and, and other substances and become very stiff, that becomes the heartwood of the tree, the very center section of the tree that offers support and stability. So that is a very quick and dirty <laughs> overview of uh, the different sections within a tree. I actually was just listening 
to the bonus episode that you recorded on Bark. Oh, yeah. And you guys were talking about the rings of the tree, right? Yes. So there's actually different colloquial terms for each of the colorations. Okay. So the lighter colored rings are referred to as springwood because when the tree is growing vigorously early in the growing season, the cells are going to be larger and thin-walled. And then later in the growing season when conditions are drier, probably hotter, the tree growth starts to slow down and the cell walls are thicker and the cells are smaller. So that gets darker, thinner rings. That's called late wood. So one ring of spring wood, one ring of late wood is actually one year of growth. Got it. Do you know who supposedly (laughs) made the link between tree rings and a tree's age? No. Supposedly the first one was uh, Da Vinci. Really? Yeah. I don't believe it. I could do anything. (laughs) 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 All right, let's talk about xylem. (laughs) So when someone wants to tap a maple tree, they're actually tapping into the xylem. So they're going through the bark, through the phloem, or that inner bark. They're cutting through the cambium layer, and they're entering into the xylem layer of the tree. But I just want to pause to ask you if you find it interesting that they're tapping the xylem and not the phloem. We were just talking about how the phloem takes sugars from the leaves and transports that whereas and i don't think we said it completely clearly yet but the xylem really transports water from the roots up through the trunk up through the branches and out the leaves right to the atmosphere and this is a very important part in plant physiology is that it's a continuous unbroken column of water from the roots to the atmosphere but the key word there is water but of course we're talking about a time of the year where there aren't leaves on the tree. That's right. So it, it does get a little complicated. Yeah. <laughs> a little complicated. <laughs> Everything about this is complicated, right? Mm-hmm. Now, I feel like we just need to, to put out some generalities about maple maple syruping. Uh, okay. Or maple sugaring, whatever you want to call it. If you want to talk about maples. <laughs> I, I do. Next episode, Bill Stringlestein. <laughs> <laughs> so I look forward to. Yeah. All right. So uh, maple sugaring takes place here in, in North America, and it's in the Northeast. It's really one of the few places in the world where it can take place on the scale that it does. So from southern Ontario and southern Quebec down all the way to Tennessee. Did you know it takes place all the way down to no. Tennessee? Yeah. Even Virginia, uh, parts of North Carolina, and then west, uh, you can go as far as Missouri and up to Minnesota. So that's the area where we have an abundance of maples, or at least enough maples, because mm-hmm. in the south, obviously, you're not going to have as much as you do here in the northeast. But you also have the correct conditions of a winter that's relatively long and cold. And then you also have a relatively long transition from winter to spring. As we'll talk about later, you need a cycle of freezing and thawing from night to day in order for the conditions to be ripe for harvesting sap. Got it. One of the papers I found actually gave a very specific figure for that, and it was that Maine, New Hampshire, New York, and Vermont, that accounts for 75% of the maple syrup produced annually in the United States. I thought that was a pretty good number, and it it makes a lot of sense, too, yeah. All right, so do you know anywhere else in the world where maple sugaring is done besides the northeast or, you know, the eastern part of the U.S.? I know in California they tap big leaf maples. Um, But in my research, I came across Japan and South Korea. I think I may have made this point in our second episode, the Fall Colors episode, that Japan is one of the only other places in the world that gets bright colors in the fall. Because they have maples. Like we do, yeah. Yeah, Not the same species. Sure. We should say right off the bat, you can tap just about any maple species, Mm -hmm. uh, as long as climate conditions are right to get the sap. 
here's my tidbits about maple sugaring section. <laughs> the, <laughs> they truly one are paragraph. <laughs> So as long as you're talking about other trees that you can tap, I actually have a list here in my gigantic sheet of extra information just in case you really wanted to talk about maples. All right, let me guess. So, all right. I, I want to guess which trees you can Got it. get this app from. Yep. All right, ready? We should preface this with these are some of the more popular trees to tap. Yeah. So, so I know uh, walnuts. Yep, with plenty of walnuts. Yep. Yep. And birches. Many birches, including yep. two of the big birches around here, the yellow and the paper. Right. Yeah. Um, I don't know what else. Ironwood. And you could also tap sycamore, and I had no idea. And that was the whole point of last episode, or the, the I should say, the bonus episode that we just put out about bark. So um, that was crazy. I mean, I had no idea. But I've heard that you can tap sycamore, but that the sugar content is so low. And, I, and there's issues, I think, with all of these other trees. There's a reason you don't find sycamore syrup on the shelf at the grocery store. Sure. Because uh, either the sugar content is too low or the flavor's awful or, <laughs> you know, there's various yeah. reasons why. But I, have you ever had birch syrup? I have not. I've had birch syrup before. It sounds like a lot of people are excited about tapping yellow birches. Well, because yellow birch and black birch have the oil of wintergreen. Oh, right. So that gives a very distinctive flavor, but paper birch does not, so I wonder what that would taste like. Yeah. Remind me of birch later, because I want to tell my story of when I tried to tap a birch tree. Oh, interesting. Uh, But why is sugar maple best? It just has the highest concentration of sugar in its sap. I think red maple is actually pretty close to sugar maple. From my experience and and from what I've read, there's no difference in flavor necessarily. Um, It's just that sugar maple has the highest sugar content. But if someone out there knows different, let us know. Yeah. Yeah. I was talking about Japan and South Korea. Yep. Apparently in South Korea, traditionally they don't make a lot of syrup or sugar. They just drink the sap as a like a spring tonic. Oh, okay. So and that's actually becoming a thing. Uh, I, started I feel like lo- I would rather do that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I actually brought some today. Did you really? I did. Yeah, because <laughs> I'm I'm tapping and collecting sap at home right now. You can actually go online. That is the newest thing: is buying maple water. They sell it for, you know, outlandish prices. And uh, I actually found someone was running a Kickstarter campaign where they were bottling it and lightly carbonating it and selling it as a, get this, a sapertif. What? <laughs> so you know what an aperitif is? Like no. A, like a, an after dinner, like a cognac or okay, something Okay, like sure, right? yeah. So they're saying, oh, this is a sapertif. <laughs> <laughs> you got to watch the video just because it's, it's so over the top, you wonder if they're joking. <laughs> but they're completely serious. <laughs> and it, it's extremely expensive when it's essentially just water. Well, if you look into, there's there's a, a lot of information online now about the health benefits of drinking maple sap and the health benefits of maple syrup. One of the articles I read said that maple sap, if you drink that, they said it has something like 30 times the amount of potassium as spring water. I'm like... If you're get, drinking spring water for potassium, there's a problem. Yeah. <laughs> or, and another one said maple syrup is almost as high in calcium and potassium as milk. I'm like, but yeah, you're not going to drink maple syrup, though. <laughs> if you're trying to get calcium by <laughs> drinking maple syrup, again, there's a problem there. All right. So since we're talking about maple syrup being produced, I want to talk about the time of year and the conditions that we need for that to take place. But why don't we start walking? Yeah, sounds good to me. All right. The most favorable tapping window, that starts in late January or early February in the southernmost um, parts of that quadrant I was talking about. 
but up here in New York or in Vermont, it usually takes place during the beginning of March because that's that time of year when you get nights that are below freezing and days that are above freezing. Yeah, today's about 35. Yeah, we're recording this in mid-March, essentially. Yep. Yeah. So the length of the season, most sap farmers, usually they have like an eight-week window. And during that eight-week window, most of the papers I looked at said that there's about 40 sap flow days during that eight-week period. So on about 70% of those days, they're going to get a significant amount of sap flowing. Now, when I started this research, I was amazed at, as usual, what I had wrong in my understanding. <laughs> I feel we should almost have a monthly section of each podcast. We call it, you know, what Bill got wrong. <laughs> so for years... <laughs> I honestly think it can be for both of us if you want. <laughs> so Ignorance corner. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> so when I was taught about maple sugaring and how it all works... I was given the, the simple explanation that, well, during the fall, maple trees send their sap down into their roots below the frost line because they wouldn't want to keep that sap up in the trunk or the branches because water expands when it freezes and that would damage the tree. So it sends it down into its roots, converts the sugars into starches, and then when the tree starts to wake up in the spring, it converts it back to sugars and we can get it. Right. That was totally wrong. It's like a turkey baster. <laughs> yeah. So it's the all the fluid is in the squeezy part of the turkey baster, <laughs> and then in the spring you just squeeze it up into the rest and of the it, tree. Yeah, that's right. Yep. <laughs> so I shouldn't say it's totally wrong. There, there are some elements of, of truth in it. <laughs> sure. So when I set out to research this episode, I wanted to find out two things. What are the exact mechanisms of sap flow within a maple? And then I also wanted to find out how is climate change going to affect maple sugaring. Ooh, I'm glad so. you did the second one because that's pretty much all the rest of what I have. <laughs> so we all can right. talk about that together. Good, good. So here's what actually happens. So we got to hold on here. We're going up a hill. Jeez. <laughs> and I need to gather my thoughts. Yeah. Uh, how does sap move through trees? So we already mentioned one. We mentioned transpiration. And just to reiterate what we mean by that, that is what I was saying with that unbroken column of water from the roots to the stomata in the leaves. So as those leaves open those little pore-like stomatas, yeah. they're releasing water, right? and then that unbroken chain of water is going to be pulled up through the roots, up the trunk, and out the leaves. Right. right. It's also important to note that trees don't want to get rid of the water. <laughs> I'm doing very <laughs> exasperated scare quotes right now. <laughs> trees don't want to get rid of water. They really would like to keep the, hold on to the water as much as possible. You could say tr just... trees are designed. <laughs> 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 no, that's not um, so, <laughs> so trees, the only thing trees are really trying to get rid of is oxygen, because oxygen is very reactive. It opens the stomata to get the oxygen out, but some carbon dioxide will also be released, and some water vapor will also be released. Right. This yeah. is all part of the process of photosynthesis. Right. So that mechanism for sap flow is only going to be taking place when the leaves are present. Another way that sap can move through a tree is through root pressure. And this usually takes place in the late winter, early spring, when you get uh, high concentrations of minerals in the roots. And then through um, changes in pressure, water starts to flow into the roots, and it's going to start to move sap up the tree. And that starts feeding those buds and the, the developing flowers. Mm -hmm. So that sap flow is necessary, and it continues until transpiration takes over. So there's yeah. transpiration... There's root pressure, and then the third mechanism that moves sap, and the reason we can tap maple trees, it's called stem pressure. 
Okay. And I'm going to do my best to describe this. <laughs> yeah, good luck. It's been a while since I took plant physiology, yeah. so I don't know how much help I'm going to be. So Steve and I were talking about how a lot of the reading we had to do is pretty technical stuff, mm -hmm. at, at least for me. So I had to reread things a lot. I had to find supporting articles to really try to explain it to myself and, and figure it out. So Yeah, I was going back to the old textbooks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you know what? There were a couple of times I looked at their references in the articles I was reading, and textbooks. a lot of them were textbooks. Yeah. Like, oh, I wish I had a textbook that I could open. If someone out there, if a listener, if they're listening to this and they, they say, oh my gosh, Bill has that totally wrong or he has this aspect of what he's explaining wrong please let us know because uh, i want to understand this and i'm hoping i have it right i think i have it right but uh, if anyone can uh, clarify or, or make my thinking more correct please do so yeah and if you find that i'm wrong about anything send us a very carefully worded email because i'm a snowflake and i will crack under the pressure steve so. is very sensitive <laughs> we bring a lot of tissues to every episode all right so maple winter sap the sap flow is caused by pressure in the stem and that's generated by alternating day and nighttime temperatures. So nights that are freezing, daytime temperatures above freezing. Oh, and before I get into that, I want to talk <laughs> about the xylem, though, because okay. that, that's important. Yeah. The xylem, what we call the sapwood, is made of these dead hollow tubes. Right. But in between and adjacent to those tubes, there are living materials. There's fiber mm -hmm. and there's... Parenchyma. Parenchyma. Yeah. Now, parenchyma... Did you know it's sometimes referred to as rays? Mm, no. So these are um, these are sections of wood that w run perpendicular to the rings. Okay. So it runs through the xylem and it will go into the phloem. Well, there's definitely water transport between the xylem and the phloem. Right. Yeah. So I, I believe it's that parenchyma that does that, mm -hmm. and that's also where the sugar is stored. So the xylem isn't just these hollow tubes; it also includes the fibers and the parenchyma that are adjacent to it, mm -hmm. all right? So we have a cool evening temperature. That's generating negative pressure from gases dissolving into the water that's there in the xylem. So the negative pressure uh, that comes from the gases dissolving into the water in the xylem, those gases come from the adjacent parenchyma, also from the intercellular spaces, so those little spaces between the cells. This negative pressure then starts drawing still liquid water from the soil into the roots. So down below the frost line, that still liquid water is being drawn in. It replicates transpiration a little bit. And then as the night freeze deepens, water freezes along the inner cell walls of those hollow fiber cells next to the xylem and in the intercellular spaces. And later in the night, vaporized water, basically on the surfaces of all the cells, freezes. And this ice formation compresses and traps the gases in the stem. So that's what's happening at night. Um, things are freezing, gases are being trapped. The next day, as temperatures climb above freezing, the heat melts the ice and causes those gases to expand. This creates positive pressure in the stem or the trunk, and that pushes sap up the stem and out the nearest exit, which, if you put a spile into the tree, that's where it's going to come out. Otherwise, it's going to go up the tree. Oh, okay. so that kind of makes sense to me. <laughs> I hope so. It seems like it makes sense to me, but I do want to preface with many trees are very different sure. in terms of what's being tapped. Sugar maples are, are sort of a little different than most trees. No, no, they are, because with birch trees, you would not tap them at the same time that maple trees are being tapped. You would have to tap them later. In the past... I did try probably about, I don't know, 15 years ago 
I'd heard about birch syrup. I'd actually taste a little bit when I was in the Adirondacks one time. And at the same time I was tapping maple trees to get sap, I went out and tapped some yellow birch and nothing came out. Some other tree species, if you're going to tap them for their sap, you need to do it later in the season. Right. So I would think when root pressure starts, then you would want to tap them. I'll get more into this in part two, but you'll actually see that pattern in animals as well, where animals that use maples, quote unquote, tap them <laughs> in the spring and in the fall. Hold on. Animals are tapping maple trees? Yes, they are. You'll <laughs> I just see... imagine a squirrel with a little <laughs> drill, <laughs> hanging little <laughs> buckets. <laughs> it's much faster than that. But you'll see that the sugar maple wells dry up in the spring, yeah. and then they don't start flowing again until the fall. And then there's other animals, like sapsuckers, that will use trees all summer long. All right, so one other quick thing. You were talking about the difference between vascular and non-vascular plants. Sure. In these, this vascular system, there's a difference between angiosperms and gymnosperms. That's a great idea, and I'm going to specifically only talk about it in terms of the xylem. As you were saying before, there's three main types of cells inside the xylem. There's the fibers, the parenchyma, and the tracheary elements. Right. The big difference is in the tracheary elements. These are the most specialized xylem cells for water conducting. The mature and functioning cells are non-living, so there's no cytoplasm, they're just kind of hollowed out cells. Right. And there's two different types of tracheary elements. There's tracheids and vessel elements. And hardwoods, or the angiosperms, have both types of tissue. They have tracheids and they have vessel elements. But gymnosperms? only have tracheids. All right, so trees like birches, maples, those hardwoods, those are the angiosperms. Mm -hmm. And then things like pine trees, spruce trees, hemlocks are in the gymnosperms. Lots right. of other plants in both of those groups, but since we're talking about trees. Right. Yeah. So tracheids, they have a high lignin content. And lignin is what gives tree cells their stiffness, their uh, resistance to support. water. Yeah. yeah. So that remember that heartwood in the middle of the tree, it's, it's suffused with lignin. And the way that they butt up against each other is kind of interesting. Just imagine you have two handfuls of colored pencils, and if you put the tips from one hand and the tips from the other hand together... Do they have to the be tips, Sure. Yeah, colored <laughs> pencils. <laughs> so you have a handful of pink colored pencils, and, uh, and then you push the tips together, and the tips are kind of overlapping kind of like little little spikes overlapping each other, that's how you should picture the tracheids. Okay. Right, but I guess they would be sharpened on both sides and there would be a, many more. So but. the sharpened tips would be close to each other. Yep. So in like a pine tree, you're going to have exchange um, through those overlapping tips. Yeah. yeah, it's not like stacking pop cans. It's right. like the tips of pencils together. Okay. Or I should say the tips of colored pencils. <laughs> so, so um, And this is maybe the most important part of the tracheids, is that they're not very wide. They're 10 to 50 nanometers tiny, wide. Tiny. Yeah, very, very small. So now the vessel elements, they're variable, but they're generally larger and more advanced than the tracheids. So these would be in the angiosperms, like in our maples. So they have tracheids. They have tracheids and they have vessel elements. And the vessel elements is where the bulk of the water is transported. And that's why angiosperms are more advanced. Right. And the reason that the bulk of water goes through vessels more than tracheids is strictly because of the width. And that might sound like a very small aspect, but the volume flow rate of a liquid is directly proportional to the fourth power of the radius of that, <laughs> what it's moving of that width. Let's say if a vessel is five times more wide than a tracheid, it's not 
having five times the flow. It's having five to the fourth times the flow, wow. or 625 times more flow than the tracheid. Only five times bigger, but 625 times more flow is going through it. So if an angiosperm is moving a heck of a lot more water than a gymnosperm, if we tapped an evergreen tree, we'd get much, much less if we could get the sap out. And generally, I try not to bring you know volume flow rate <laughs> equations into this, but it's so astounding that I think it's worth bringing up. Oh, that definitely. when you're talking about flow rate, even a little difference, you wouldn't imagine that the you difference say, would be that much. Yeah, you can't yeah. say just because it's five times wider, you're removing five times the amount of fluid. Right. All right, so... I think that's pretty decent with the distinguishing. <laughs> so just to summarize that... Oh, boy. The gymnosperms only have tracheids, and those aren't very wide. They move water, but it's not a crazy amount of water. And then angiosperms, or the hardwoods, have both vessel elements and tracheids. And I was saying before that the tracheids are like colored pencils tip to tip the vessel elements are much more like stacking pop cans. Right. Or stacking a, straws. Or stacking straws. Yeah. It's very much more like that. So yeah. they're not overlapping. They're just one on top of the next. Okay, so now I want to get back to talking about the sap. We talked about how the sap was moving through the tree, how it comes out the spile. But let's talk about how sugar gets into the sap. Because it's not just water coming out of there. But I imagine there are some people out there listening who don't know that the sap that comes out of the maple tree looks just like water. Oh, yeah. It is, generally speaking, 98% water. Mm -hmm. um, and just looking at it, you wouldn't be able to tell the difference. The sugar that's in there comes from carbohydrates that are stored in the living ray parenchyma and the fiber vessels that are adjacent to the xylem. So just to remind everybody, the xylem, remember, that is bringing water up from the roots and sending it up throughout the tree, up to the leaves. Mm -hmm. X-Y-L-E-M? Yeah. X is near the top of the alphabet, so you're trying to get things to the top. That's a stretch. And the phloem is flowing, flowing down, down. but right. it also goes up and down. But right. still, it's the only one that goes down as well. Right. Yeah. So, and then the, the parenchyma are those structures that move perpendicular to the rings. They're for storage and lateral translocation of solutes. Right. And the word solute is just a fancy word of saying what gets dissolved. So maybe salt would be a or salt sugar. or sugar. Right. Well, okay. More appropriately, sugar <laughs> would be a solute. So the sugar is, is stored generally as starch in the parenchyma during the winter time. But then as we move through the winter, an enzyme that's released into the xylem converts the starch to sucrose. And then it's moved into the xylem. And maple syrup is, and really sap, the sugar that's in there is mostly sucrose. But as you said, it also contains glucose, inorganic salts, some peptides and amino acids, and then a few mystery organic compounds. <laughs> sure. um, but Some hydrocarbons here and there. Well, you know. <laughs> no, we say that as a joke, but it's really not well understood, the mechanism that gives maple its flavor. Mm -hmm. And it's generally thought that it's related to those mystery organic compounds that are still being studied. And in different types of sap from different trees, there are other compounds, and that's why that their sap tastes different. I didn't come here planning on talking about maples during the maple episode, but I think I read that there's about like 300 different chemical compounds in sap. Oh my gosh. Beside, I don't know if 300 is an understatement or what, but... So, I have a list. Oh my god, you have a hundred pages there. <laughs> <laughs> it's not just water and sugar in there, folks. There's, there's a lot more in there. All right, so that is pretty much all I have on 
um, how sap moves through the tree, and just general stuff about maple sugaring. Researching for this episode, I feel much more satisfied that I have a more correct understanding of what is happening in maple trees mm-hmm. when I'm tapping them and getting the sap out. We threw that turkey baster hypothesis <laughs> in the garbage. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I've probably that's what I've been thinking for 15 plus years. That's how yeah. it works. So it's not easy to find out you're wrong about something. I, <laughs> <laughs> I need to research every single thing I've ever thought about just to see how ignorant I really am. So I do have one last thing. This is a 2014 study, by the way. Syrup is both a function of sap volume, so the volume of sap that's coming out of the tree, but it's also a function of the sugar content of that sap. Right. And what it was trying to find out is it wanted to explain the variation in sugar content of sap from year to year. Because that's a question that a lot of people have asked, but there hasn't been a very clear answer to it yet. What they found was that the previous year's seed production was strongly negatively correlated with the current year's syrup yield. So if you had an incredible mast year, you put out tons of seed, the next year would have a bad sugar content in their sap. Okay, now, because you said syrup yield. So do you mean the amount of syrup or the amount of sugar in the sap? I specifically said syrup yield. The water content is independent of the sugar content. So the water content could be something like a good snow melt in the spring. But if you had a mass year the year before, you're not going to have a high sugar content okay. in your sap. So you'd end up with less syrup in the long run. So you could end up with more sap, but less syrup. They also looked at climate variables, and they said that climate variables also are important to syrup yield, but they were not statistically significant unless you first accounted for the variation in seed production from the year before. When they say environmental effect, they're talking about was there a low snowpack, was there damage to the tree in some way. They looked at all these different factors that can change from year to year, and they found that the thing that was the most significant was the seed yield from the year before. Because you imagine there's a lot of carbon and energy that goes into producing seeds. That tree's going to be running low after that. Right. The building blocks of a tree are the building blocks of a tree. You You can build new tree with it, or samaras or whatever else. If it's a mast year and you're really pushing to put out a lot of seed, that's going to be where a lot of your resource goes, and you won't be able to store as much for sap. Maples are a, you know, save some for later species. Yeah. But if you're in a mast year, you're not going to have as much to save. That makes sense. Yeah. 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 All right, so now everybody has a good idea, at least I hope so, of how the sap (laughs) moves through the maple trees. They have some general info about maple sugaring. Uh, But we mentioned we're at the Beaver Meadow Audubon Center, and they're actually having a maple festival here today. So what do you say we go up and see if we can talk to somebody at the sugar shanty? Let's see if they'll let us. All right, let's head up there. So we're walking up to the sugar shanty. Uh, It looks like a large three-sided shed, and there's steam coming out of the top, and uh, we're going to see if we can talk to somebody inside. All right, folks, so uh, we have two volunteers here. Uh, We have Roy. How you doing, Roy? I'm good. And we have Terry. Hey. So these are two of the great volunteers here at Beaver Meadow. Known them uh, both. Terry, I've known 15 years, more than that. Easy. (laughs) Easy. Easy. So uh, they are manning the sugar shanty today. So we have a barrel stove here. And uh, how many gallons would you say the pan on top holds there? Um, That's around five gallons. Okay. And uh, we filled that this morning. About 9 o'clock I was here. Okay. And how many trees are they tapping? This year we're tapping... 
Seven. Okay. Four down the sugar bush. Okay. Which we have the pails on. Yeah. And uh, three down here. We put the new tap lines in. This is a new system we put in this year. So. All right. So you have the tubing running down to the big pail there. Yeah. Okay. Five that was about pail. half full when we got here this morning. So right. we last night we um, probably got about five gallons of sap we collected. All right. So even though it wasn't that warm yesterday, it was warm enough for the. It was sap. warm enough. Yeah. yeah. Ideally, forty degrees during the day and at night twenty to twenty-five. Right. That's ideal temperatures for sap to run. Sure. So now we fill this and um, we're going to boil that <laughs> for about probably between eight and ten hours and we'll get enough to fill maybe a small jam jar. You can't see that here. But <laughs> so there, he's holding up a little jar and it has about, what, an inch and a half of syrup in it? Yeah, that's about all you're going <laughs> to get. So as you realize, it's a system where it doesn't really work well if you want to produce a lot of maple syrup. Right. So this is more like a backyard. This is a demonstration, so... Right. You know, Labor of love. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Just so I can describe for the folks at home, in the pan there's some sap boiling, and it's got some color, right? Yes. Now yeah. it does. Yeah. Now it does. Now that's basically the water burning off, and you're left with the sugar. Right. Just like any sugar, if you boil it, it'll, it gets caramelly, yeah. so it'll turn brown. So that's what's happening right now. Yeah, when and eventually uh, end up about that color a little lighter, depending on where you are. So I, I don't know if you guys have done this, but when I used to work here and we'd be boiling sap, we would use the boiling sap water as it gets sweeter and sweeter to make tea. Uh, there yeah. you go. Yeah, <laughs> that would be oh, the tea water. Well, it'll get to the point where we think it's getting close to what we want. We would use a hydrometer, which we have here, and we would fill the tube and we put the hydrometer in and. Again, you can't see it, but there's two red lines on there. Roy's holding up a... It looks like a, a big thermometer. Yes, it's a hydrometer which tests mm. specific gravity. Okay. If you're doing it commercially, that's how they would test it, probably. We could say, like, it measures the density of the right. liquid, right? Yeah. And yeah. the more dense it gets, the closer it gets to being syrup, the higher it'll float. Right. And as I say, you get it between those two red lines is what ideally you want it. At that stage, it's now 67% sugar and 33% water. And then that's when you know you have syrup. That's when you know yeah. you have syrup. And if you kept going past that? If you kept going past that, you could boil it about another 20 degrees above boiling, okay. which you would let cool down a little bit. You would stir it up, and you've got cream now. If you kept boiling again, you would get it up to about 25 degrees above boiling point, and you would be able to make maple candies. Uh. Put them in little molds like these and uh, let them set. You get maple candies. And then it would harden up. It would harden up. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Back in, you know, when they started doing this, the Native Americans did it. They wouldn't actually make maple cream because they had no way to store it. They would just let it granulate. It was called Indian sugar. Right. And they would just put it in their food. Or they would, uh, you know, the kids would eat it as a treat. Sure. But basically what they did, because they couldn't store it, in the spring, the whole village would move down to the sugar bush. Right. And they would stay down there for six weeks. And they would just do this in the old hollow log that you see out back. So and when the settlers came across, they, well, of course, they had containers, pots and pans, so now they could keep it. They Make things a lot it. easier. So now yeah. they would make maple syrup and keep it. All right. Well, gentlemen, thank you for your time. You're, You're welcome. welcome. All right, enjoy. Anytime. All right. Okay, now that we're experts, and all our <laughs> listeners are experts, on how sap flows, how maple syruping works, um, how you make the syrup, all that good stuff, uh, let's talk about my other main point that I researched how climate change could possibly affect maple sugaring and, and what the uh, predictions are. I'll tell you what I assumed I was going to find. Okay. I assumed that there would be bad news in terms of maples in one way or another, whether it was 
that maybe the sugaring season would be shorter or maybe delayed in some way, or maybe maples themselves, let's say totally independent of sugaring, are declining across the landscape, then that's going to hurt, indirectly hurt um, maple sugaring. And that's what I assumed I was going to find. It's really hard to tell what you've heard through what you're trying to sort of deduce on your own, you sure. know, in a Sherlock-like style. So, so go ahead. Let's jump right in. Well, your prediction it actually was, was pretty spot on. <laughs> okay. So let's just move on. Okay. <laughs> no, yeah, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so, yeah, there, there's some bad news. It's, it's not a, what's predicted is not a complete catastrophe. But what you said is accurate, that maples are going to be impacted uh, generally speaking, in a negative way, and that's going to indirectly hurt maple production. Mm-hmm. Before I started to look into actual studies that looked at predictions, I came across a study that looked at what maple farmers were thinking. Okay. So it was actually a survey of maple farmers and what they thought the impacts of climate change were going to be. So this is from 2015, and they interviewed a whole bunch of, of maple farmers, and they basically said they're concerned um, that temperature changes have already affected the length and time of the tapping season that's made it shorter. They believe that the quality and quantity of maple sap is already adversely affected. And they said about one third of the respondents had missed the first sap flow of the season, that it came too early for them. From a lot of the research that I went into, it seems most maple farmers, they don't keep that first tapping day fluid. They kind of stick to a a tapping day. Although I've known a couple uh, commercial maple farmers and they do adjust their time. So maybe they're the anomaly. I don't know. If people out there know better, let us know. But maple farmers generally were predicting that things were going to be bad because of climate change, that okay. it was going to affect them adversely. So, But what does the research show? I probably looked at 10, 15 different studies. First, just trying to get a general sense. One study I looked at was from 2014, and it just looked at climate factors. And they said that, generally speaking, Things in the southern portion of maple production range, they were going to be hit hardest because with higher temperatures, uh, it may be good for maples in the growing season. Mm. So the maples may do better with warmer temperatures, but it was going to restrict late winter, early spring conditions. It would make less days when there was that alternation of freezing and thawing. Right. So, so in the southern regions, the maples may actually be doing better, but there's going to be less of a season for sugar. Right. Okay. So it's good for the maples and necessarily good for syrup production. Sure. But they also did say that it could cause the maple range to extend northward, which would then increase the area available because you could plant more maple trees farther to the north. I think that that's a trend that we plan on seeing. Oh, yeah. That maples are just going to keep moving further north into Canada. (laughs) A lot of uh, (laughs) trees in our area are going to keep doing that, right? Yeah. So uh, I delved into the discussion section. They basically said that if you were going to create optimal conditions for maple sugaring, Mm -hmm. you would have a very long freeze-thaw period, you would have a warm growing season, and then you would have cold winters because apparently uh, there's a correlation between colder winters and the amount of sugar um, that is stored by the tree. Okay. So the colder the winter, uh, generally speaking, the more sugar you're going to have in the sap. All right, so the interesting part about this one study is they said climate, in what they looked at, only accounted for about 44% of variability. Okay. So really only about half of the variability you could connect to climate. The other factors would be growth and vigor of maple trees, soil fertility, atmospheric acid deposition, Mm -hmm. and then sap extraction and conversion methods. 
So climate isn't the only factor, depending on how you're harvesting your sap, your soil conditions. Um, those are all important factors as well. So we can't just say, climate's going to change, things are going to be bad, and there's nothing else we can do about it. There are other factors that producers can think about. Okay. So other things I looked at. There was another 2015 study that looked at syrup yield, and they looked at uh, a 12-year period from 121 different maple stands in Quebec. And what they found is that the sap season was going to be displaced and occur 15 to 19 days earlier after 2080. Okay. So they wouldn't, according to this study and their prediction model, they weren't going to see any major changes for over 60 years. Sure. Okay. It would just mean that the season was going to start a little bit earlier, so it would probably end a little bit earlier as well. Uh, another study kind of backed that study up. This was from 2010. They said sap flow days would virtually stay the same. If you kind of looked at all of syrup production in North America, the season would shift earlier. Mm -hmm. The end of the season would shift a little earlier. But the number of sap flow days would stay virtually the same. And that if producers capitalized on the expanding range growing to the north, and they added more taps up there to make up for the taps they're losing in the south. Virtually, the number of taps and the amount that's produced could stay the same. Their model was using the highest emissions predictions that are out there. They said that in Maine, the current optimal start date is March 11th, and if emissions are as high as uh, some predictions are, they said by 2030, the optimal start date in Maine would move from March 11th to early February. So just about a month. Here in New York, it would move from March 1st to February 1st. So it seemed, generally speaking, it was shifting about a month. So that study I just mentioned a few minutes ago said it was going to be more like 16 to 19 days. Mm -hmm. So you know, anywhere from two weeks to a month, these two studies are saying. And generally, it seems most of the studies I looked at, they did say that the season's going to start earlier. It's going to end earlier. They won't be able to produce as much syrup in the southern part of maple production area, but there's going to be new areas opening up to the north. Okay, yeah. Um, but there were some studies I looked at that just looked at how maples are going to do, and this is where it seems to get a little complicated. So this is a study from this year, 2017. I liked the title, Managing for Delicious Ecosystem Service Under Climate Change. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, if people don't know, ecosystem services are services nature provides for us for mm -hmm. free. And maple syrup is one of those non-timber forest resources. Yeah. So This study from 2017 predicted that sugar maple habitat is projected to decline and it could lead to reduced maple syrup production. And they looked at 23 states within the U.S. and they said on average by state, the habitat was going to decline by half. Wow. So I do want to add something in really quick, and it actually has something to do with our Subnivian Zone episode. Oh, okay. So for example, the reduced snowpack that we were talking about all during episode 16, when you combine that with the warmer winter temperatures, and remember what I said about warmer winter temperatures in the winter, mean a colder soil. If you don't have the snowpack, the soil is more likely to freeze, and unfortunately, Sugar maples are much more susceptible to frost damage than some other trees. You're just going to get a decline in the health of maples in general with a declining snowpack. Just here in New York, we've seen that through this whole winter. We haven't really had much of a snowpack at no. all. Today is a surprising day that we have snow, but we kind of were just hit by a little bit of a storm, which, if you go back to episode 16, that was more or less predicted in the literature, that right. we're going to get more storms, 
but that snow is not going to stick around. Right. There's not going to be much We're not of a significant zone. Consistent snowpack throughout the winter. So this paper was saying, and this goes along with what you were saying, is that it's predicted that there will be about a 20% or more reduction in sugar maple sap yield, and the sap season may be shortened by about half. So really? it totally, totally lines up with the more extreme versions of what you're saying. But another thing that they wanted to look at was soil acidification, because mm-hmm. with climate change, that's another one of the things that we see increasing. And it reduces the cold tolerance in trees like red spruce, sugar maple, and paper birch. So besides not being great with having your roots frozen, the acidification is making it a little bit worse. (laughs) And uh, there's declines that are just projected for these trees with the continuing effect of climate change. This study also looked at yellow birches. Have you ever seen yellow birch seeds all over the snow? Oh, yeah. They look like little bird's feet, kind of. They're almost like a little trident shape. Yep. And you'll find them all over the snow, and that helps the seeds disperse. But if there is no snow for them to land on, that actually may restrict the ability of the yellow birch to spread its seed. So it's not just the maples, it's also birches. It's not just damage, it's also the snow's not there to help out seed dispersal as well. Yeah, so I I just thought that was interesting that we can talk about the the sugar season itself. Not just the length of the season, but the amount of sap. We could talk about the health of the trees. Right. We could talk about even their inability to reproduce as well as they did before. There's so many... facets that you can come at this from. But I think it's important to mention in the one study that I looked at, and I think it was just that one study, the model that they were using predicted that maples in the south may do better because higher temperatures might help them during the growing season. But that was really the only study that seemed to indicate maples were going to do better in some areas, Mm -hmm. according to climate change, beyond the northern reaches of their range. Obviously, uh, we know things are going to shift north. Like that one study I mentioned that their range in 23 states could possibly drop in half. Mm -hmm. Um, And several of the other studies I found generally seem to say maples, in terms of the species here in the Northeast, weren't going to be doing as well. You could say you found that as well? Yeah. Yeah. All right. So do you have anything else? So I do have one last thing. There was a study from the Northern Journal of Applied Forestry from 2013 that I thought was pretty interesting. It was saying that although syrup output has been growing at a rapid pace over the past decade, if you really look at the total number of maple trees that we have, only a small fraction of the maple resource is currently being tapped for syrup production. So there's a lot of potential there that we're not going into. Oh, yeah, definitely. The primary thing that this study did was it sent a survey out to a bunch of landowners that had large patches of forest with over 100 acres in Maine, New Hampshire, New York, and Vermont. And what they found was that landowners in New England, so think a little bit northeast of New York, they had a much more favorable attitude towards tapping their maple trees. But in New York, they were a little bit hesitant to, to tap. Well, because they were concerned about the impact of tapping on their future saw timber value. Yeah. And one of the things that they were saying was that there are barriers in terms of personal interest because some people don't have the knowledge of what it means when you tap a tree and what that actually is doing to the tree, whether it's harming it or, or, or whatnot. And they also might not know about the time and labor constraints and, you know, anything like that. Well, I do have two studies. This goes again to uh, things I thought I knew. What's your little jingle? <laughs> Ignorance corner. <Yeah. laughs> so I was, again, I was always taught and I taught people that 
as long as you don't take too much sap out of the tree, you know, you wait until the tree's about 18 inches to put on the first bucket, and uh, then generally uh, every 12 inches more you add another bucket or another tap. Okay. You could take about up to 10% of the sap flow, and you're not harming the tree. So I looked into that. I found two studies, one in 2014 and one in 2017. What these two studies found is, one, that in a sugar maple that was tapped, there was decreased radial growth. So the tree didn't get as big as it could have if it wasn't tapped. And then the other, uh, the other study pretty much backed that up. It said both tapped, let's see, uh, tapped trees had a higher percentage of years, 27%, with below average growth during years with moist spring conditions. They said during dry years, both the reference trees and the tapped trees showed below average growth, but during moist springs, the tapped trees didn't grow according to the average. If I were to guess, that would be my guess. Yeah, so is it harming the tree? Well, the tree's not growing as much as it might have right. if you didn't tap it. It's not making them sick or killing them. No. It's just slowing down the regular metabolism. Right, according to the, these two studies. Okay. So, you know, if you're someone who's concerned with timber value, you could look at those two studies and say, hey, if I tap these trees, they're not going to be as big as they could be. I'm not going to get as much as I could get, potentially. Another part of me wonders, that would be kind of a complex calculation, I think, because oh, yeah. you'd have to figure in the money you'd get from the syrup, and also, True. what if it's not an incredibly big difference in growth? Right, and I didn't look into the details of the study, like, how are they tapping these trees? Mm -hmm. Are they taking more than 10%? I don't know. Right. So, Are they doing the vacuum yes. tubing system? Yeah, using um, vacuum pressure to pull out uh, more sap, yeah. uh, you can get up to three times as much sap mm -hmm. that way. And I could definitely see that there could be an issue with that. Sure. All right. Well, I'm glad those two studies tied into uh, what you were saying. I think that's all I have. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> all right. This seems to be a good spot to stop because I think with everything we, we've covered today, this episode can really stand on its own. Oh, I think uh, so, for sure. So we talked about the structure of a tree, how sap moves through the tree. We got to spend some time at the sugar shanty, and then we also discussed how climate change is going to be impacting our maples possibly in the future. So uh, this episode will be how human animals get sappy, <laughs> and next episode will be how non-human animals get sappy, but they totally stand alone. Yeah. 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 Since this is kind of a part one, we're just going to do a quick wrap-up now. And we'll do more of our shout-outs next time. Yeah. yeah. We do want to say thank you to our patrons. We've gotten some new ones over the past month. Steve? So thank you so much, Diane, Scott, Ken, Matt, Beth. We named the dog Indy. <laughs> Paul, Molly, Rob, Alyssa, Dan, Dave, Chimera, Kimberly, and Lee. We'll thank our reviewers next time, but just keep those reviews coming, guys. It really helps us get the word out there. I heard someone on a podcast ask people to do a twofer. So <laughs> do leave two reviews? <laughs> no, no. Spend two minutes leaving us a review and then share the podcast with two friends. Ah, uh, I yeah. see. And lastly, Bill and I would also like to give a second and official shout-out to Byron from To Know the Land on 93.3 FM CFRU out of the University at Guelph in Guelph, Ontario, because we just received confirmation that our interview will be featured on March 20th and March 27th. So that's going to come out right around the time this episode comes out. March 20th, 2017. We got a twofer. <laughs> Speaking of twofers. We were so fascinating. I think it's because we're long-winded, especially me. If there was one show I highly recommended over any other show, it's his January 2nd show. Byron actually reads this great article called Doe, a Deer, a Female Deer, the Spirit of Mother Christmas. 
So if you want to check out Byron's reading, his back catalog of episodes can be found at cfru.ca forward slash recordings forward slash 315, and we'll put a link in the episode notes. If you have any of your own questions, comments, or episode suggestions, send us an email at thefieldguides at gmail.com. Visit us on Instagram at fieldguidespodcast. Follow us on Twitter at fieldguidespod. Like and follow us on Facebook, and please visit our website at thefieldguidespodcast.com. And if you like what you hear and you want to support the podcast, you can do so on patreon.com forward slash thefieldguides. Okay, folks, thanks so much for listening. We hope this one wasn't too technical. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But the companion to this episode will be out in just a couple weeks, and then our regular monthly episode will be out a couple weeks after that. Yeah, sounds good to me. All right, folks, we will see you next time. Thanks for listening. Take care.